Welcome to Pod of the Planet, a podcast about our changing planet and what we're doing to manage that change. We're just a few weeks into 2021, and uh, boy, does it feel like it's been a lot longer than that. Um, we have some great stuff planned for Pod of the Planet this year. And I just wanted to start off by thanking our listeners for tuning in. There's so much going on in the world out there, and I appreciate you spending some time with us and on what we feel like are some very important and many times overlooked issues. It's been little over a year since the first cases of COVID-19 were first reported. Since then, we're nearing the unfortunate milestone of 100 million infected cases worldwide and with more than 2 million deaths. But there is hope. Vaccines are showing high efficacy rates, but the immediate future still doesn't bode well as rollout has been deliberate. Even in the U.S., due to a lack of leadership on public health issues, we're seeing our highest daily cases totals nearing 300,000 and climbing. These numbers are staggering and yet conceptually hard to grasp, and the long-term effects it's having on people around the world is even less understood. That's why in this episode of Pod of the Planet, we're exploring migration, both within countries and at borders, and more specifically how corruption has been exacerbated and how migrants are being taken advantage of during this pandemic in Kenya and India. Busia is a border town between Kenya and Uganda. Once COVID staked a foothold in East Africa, borders were closed to stem its spread, and as a result, small-scale traders were left in a lurch. Women and their families whose livelihoods depended on being able to transport their goods across borders were forced to take unsanctioned routes, leaving them at risk. In this clip, we hear from Florence Atieno, the chairperson of the Busia Cross-Border Women Traders Cooperative. She talks about the challenges she and many others have had to endure. I want to tell you we are, we are facing so many challenges during the COVID-19 pandemic since we start, the start. Because we have so many challenges as women, 99% who are small-scale traders who are crossing borders every day and every time are women. And we are facing so many challenges because women cannot access the market because of the closing of our border. At the same time, government came with the regulations and rule to close the border. So we, those things who are being passing as just a cargo. But women are small, small, they are using, uh, they are, they are using caskets, sometimes motorcycles, sometimes bicycles. But government came with the rules, those things cannot pass the OSPP. So we didn't access our markets. At the same time, we lose our markets because of COVID. At the same time, we have challenges about GBV, gender-based violence, because our women, so men lost their jobs and came to sit with us at home. So women are the ones who are taking life foods up and down. Every time you are go, we, we, you can't sit and see when your family are dying and suffering to hunger. You, you must wake up and go to look something which children can get and eat. So that is what we are facing, gender-based violence, because women, uh, men are, are hungry with us because they don't, they don't have money. I'm asking him money, but he didn't have. Yes, uh, so many women, then uh, they are using uh, porous rules because the regulations and rules of governments doesn't allow them to pass at the OSPP, one-stop border post. But uh, b before Corona, COVID-19 came, we have been using one-stop border post because we have already sensitized and we know our rights and we know regulations and rules of customs. But right now, 
rules who have come about the COVID-19 that is make so many women to go back to the bush. So they are facing so many challenges, harassment and or sexual harassment and theft, or gender-based violence with the security officer at the bush there. Corruption level has already increased because when you are passing to the bush, you don't have any voice. You're supposed to bribe somebody who, who don't, you don't know and he, you can bribe any money, any amount of money because you don't know who, who will help you at the bush there. You, you are risking yourself. In this next clip, Edna Mudibo, the secretary for the same organization, tells us how the border crossing has become rife with corruption. One, they're affected by not making good profit. Two, through those non-gazetted routes, if you are not able to bribe, they can end up to get sexual harassment from security officers from both sides. Because somebody says, then if you don't have money, you will give me what you have. You see, and that is what you call sexual harassment. And then losing of your products that you have bought. And yet that product is not, it is not legal that when you come in Uganda, they will arrest you. It is just a good product, but since you have not bribed, you can end up losing it. Yeah. So one, Corona has affected us because we are not able to go to Uganda. They have closed the borders. Even now? Uh-huh. Yeah, even now it has not been announced officially that the border is opened. So most of the people, they don't know if it is opened or not. You see, we are used from Museveni and Uhuru to come and tell us the border is opened. And we shall move freely. Right now, that free movement is not there. Yeah. Most of the ladies need more sensitization. They need to know their rights. Eh? They need to be trained. And they sh- so that they use OSBP, one stop border post. Because others they are using it through ignorance. Others they are using it because they lack knowledge of using border procedures. They are not able to, they don't know that STR, that lack of knowledge is making them to go to the Panya routes. Eh? And then I think the border should be opened officially and everybody who is a trader, a cross-border trader, knows that there is a border is open, there is what we call free movement, both Uganda and Kenya. My two guests are Amrita Dillon, a professor of political economy at King's College London, and Jackie Klopp, a research scholar at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. And both are researchers with the Global Integrity Anti-Corruption Evidence Program. Welcome to you both, and thanks for joining Pot of the Planet. Great to be here. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, great. Could you tell me what you were both doing uh, before the start of this pandemic? Amrita, you could start. Yes. So before the start of the pandemic, uh, my research was focused on anti-corruption, looking at uh, the uh, efficacy of centralized versus decentralized monitoring on corruption. And we were going to focus on two major, two two large-scale public sector projects in India. Uh, One was a a, a major employment guarantee scheme and another was a road building scheme. And we were going to see, uh, look at data to see uh, whether you know top-down audits were 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 more efficient at uh, reducing corruption than uh, social accountability through social audits. That mm-hmm. was the focus of my research before COVID started. Mm-hmm. And Jackie, with the team in 
Nairobi, Kenya, uh, the Busara Center for uh, uh, um, Behavioral Economics, and a really interesting startup called Saudi Africa. I was looking at um, small scale traders and the corruption they face crossing borders. These are predominantly women and they run small businesses and they're just really, really important for the economies and communities in these border regions. They face a lot of corruption and we were exploring whether we could use cell phones and the cell phone based platform that Saudi runs to give traders information to gather more data about the kinds of corruption they face and to see if we could build community reporting mechanisms to address that corruption. Mm-hmm. And now that we're in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic, how has your research changed, Amrza? Well, uh, we've had to pivot a lot. So we were planning to do some, um, some uh, 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 an experiment in the field that has had to change. Uh, so one of the things we, uh, we are now looking at is uh, you know, the effect on um, uh, corruption in the health sector due to, especially due to COVID, there have been, you know, a number of cases in India where hospitals have been overcharging or you know, denying uh, services to patients who are who are poor and marginalized. So that's a little bit of uh, the kind of uh, pivoting I've done since this whole pandemic started. Mm-hmm. And Jackie, any, uh, and, and, and for you? So there are two real impacts. One is that we are doing all of this remotely before we were going to be uh, working with traders in the markets and getting them to upload this program on their phone and train them on how to use it. And then we were going to be testing its efficacy and the efficacy of different messaging and provide some incentives to get them to use this. We obviously can't go into the market. So we are having to do quite a bit of this remotely. Fortunately, we have um, phone numbers for traders and we can do this. We're also going to be doing uh, regular interviews uh, on how things are going because of COVID. So the second impact is actually trying to explore the impact of COVID on the experience of traders and particularly corruption. Mm-hmm. And, and both of you have look, been looking at corruption and migration issues uh, for years. Is there any, has there been anything like this or, you know, the kind of impact that, you know, obviously the pandemic, it's, it's new for, for many of us, but I'm just wondering, has there been any similarities to any other experience you've had in, in your research? Maybe Jack, do you want to start? Well, I think one thing, uh, that is important to think about is shocks more generally, mm-hmm. you know, big impacts on, um, on societies and places like East Africa have had shocks. They're very vulnerable to droughts, mm-hmm. um, and flooding and political, um, problems, upheaval. There has been civil war in the region and, um, I think this whole question of how does corruption um, make these things worse, make the efforts to address them worse um, is really important. And I think the pandemic as another shock mm-hmm. has raised this really critical question. Um, and we are expecting more, unfortunately, of these kinds of 
uh, traumatic shocks with climate change. Um, so right. I think that's one really important thread uh, with previous research and just a big issue we have to think about. Yeah. And, and talking about, you know, sometimes a, a government's response can be a, a bit of a shock too. And, and I know in India, Amrita, um, you know, March 22nd is a kind of a day that might live in infamy. I don't know. Um, can you explain to us, you know, some of us over here in the, in, in other parts of the, the world, just what exactly happened in India during, during that lockdown? Yes, I mean, when news of this uh, deadly coronavirus finally reached the Indian government's ear, yeah. they took very hard and decisive action. So they basically, the government declared a nationwide uh, lockdown on March 22nd. Yeah. And there were only four hours to spare. Uh, unfortunately, the government did not take into account the millions of migrant workers who live and work in the urban centers and uh, come from the, you know, from the countryside, from the rural areas. Mm -hmm. So these workers were just left stranded in the city. And as it is, they have, uh, you know, they have very cramped accommodation. So, you know, a lockdown for these people was was kind of uh, hard to imagine that it would have a, a, anything, anything good coming out of it. Because if they weren't outside, they would be stuffed inside with a, with a large number of other people passing on infection to each other. So they, these, these people were left without any... Uh, jobs with uh, no money. And uh, of course, they are the, the poorest, uh, you know, most marginalized sections and of society. They had no savings and there's, there was no transport to return to their uh, hometowns, mostly in the rural areas. Yeah. And these were like, uh, you know, places sometimes thousands of miles away. Uh, so these migrant workers, they work in occupations from construction to rickshaw driving and various freelance jobs like transcribing documents on computers, and they live precariously. So basically they had no option but to walk home. And the lockdown actually had, a, had, had the opposite impact of what it was supposed to because the migrants, many of whom were infected in the more congested urban areas, mm -hmm. went home with great difficulty to their, to their hometowns and, uh, and maybe, you know, took the infection with them. Yep. So not only did the lockdown not work in terms of uh, reducing the, the spread of the virus, in fact, might have increased it, mm. but it also, you know, uh, removed their, uh, their, their, uh, their ability to go back home and maybe make use of this employment guarantee scheme to, to get some, some income for themselves. Yeah. And, and Jackie, um, in East Africa, can you give us some a bit of a snapshot picture of what happened there at the start or you know, during during the course of this pandemic in terms of the uh, the borders? Yeah, um, in some ways similar to India, there was a lockdown of the borders, um, and uh, yeah, on March twenty third, Kenya and Uganda they just uh, closed one of their some of their busiest borders. Um, and eventually they would allow um, the movement of large vehicles through because, you know, it's important to get goods <laughs> across the border. Um, but they were not allowing any other kind of transport. And that became very discriminatory because mm -hmm. these smaller scale traders do not have big trucks. Um, and so they were at a really uh, big disadvantage. Um, and of course you need public health restrictions. It's very important, but there was really no consideration to 
placed on on these um, smaller scale traders. And so many of them, you know, being in a really difficult position, either um, started to trade internally or some of them would go through informal borders, which put them at very high risk. Um, and so that was one impact. The other impact uh, is was that the police, who are one of the number one uh, culprits in terms of corruption and brutality, became very empowered. And there is um, a lot of evidence of increased harassment, brutality, and also an increase in bribes that... Um, women ha are you know would be paying as they cross the border so mm -hmm. they were put in a very very precarious um position by the government actions um and by the fact that the government just didn't really see them or think about them and i guess there's a parallel there with the with the poor migrants in india right right and and obviously when we talk about whether migrants or um, these small-scale traders, you know, we've we, they're they're a specific vulnerable group, you know, subset of the population, but a very large group, and and obviously um, a group that we need to pay more attention to. I'm wondering, um, uh, maybe I'm gonna, can you tell me a little bit about what the Indian government has been doing to, um, I guess, address the the needs of of this group of of the migrant workers. Yes, so um, so of course the the government did realize uh, the uh, problems faced by migrant workers ultimately, and uh, even though they had started off by uh, by by uh, you know telling various factories to keep the workers in their jobs and to keep paying them wages, uh, it didn't actually get implemented. So ultimately, many of the migrants who were you know daily wage workers, they they did return home to their rural areas. And the government responded with the two very, uh, uh, you know, uh, with two schemes which were, of course, you know, much appreciated. One was, uh, one was a scheme to provide uh, employment to workers uh, in the villages, mm -hmm. and uh, through through this employment, they would they would then get you know access to wages. And at the same time, they thought that you know by by uh, by sort of matching the skills of uh, the migrants from cities uh, who had gone to the villages matching the skills of these migrants to what was needed in the village would help to build some important infrastructure uh, uh, in the village. So this was, of course, already being carried out in, in some of the existing schemes which the government has, one of whom was the large-scale employment guarantee program that I was talking about before, where workers are already used, uh, you know, they get, they get sort of guaranteed employment, but that employment is then used to build assets in the village, like, you know, irrigation or water harvesting, you know, small, small scale infrastructure projects like that. Mm -hmm. So this was, this scheme was, was especially like concentrated on the 116 districts from where, uh, you know, the, uh, the, which had a very large concentration of, of these uh, returning migrant workers. So they increased the allocation to these, uh, 116 villages. And, uh, this, uh, this was one of the main things. Besides, of course, you know they had uh, free food uh, rations and so on, which which they uh, made available in uh, all across India. Yeah, no, and and clearly, uh, you know, this has been a constant balancing act between not only trying to um, you know lock down and and reduce the spread of of the coronavirus, but at the same time, you know, making sure that people's livelihoods and, and, and we're addressing their vulnerabilities and, and obviously the economic impact is, is, uh, devastating. Um, 
you know, is this Jackie something you're seeing the countries within East Africa acknowledging and is there any um, type of cooperation you're seeing between them to, to address these challenges? Yeah, I think uh, the COVID crisis has made the countries in the region uh, recognize how intertwined they are. They had to coordinate around the border issues even more with COVID um, because they had to come up with rapid responses to how they were going to address movement across the borders. Uh, It wasn't always smooth, but it definitely, um, I think, pushed uh, an awareness of how important addressing these regional issues are. Um, I think it has also accelerated some um, innovative ideas, uh, including perhaps trying to move some of the markets to the borders so that traders don't actually have to cross as much. Um, And, you know, it sort of stitches the the economies together. Um, So I think in that sense, there has been some greater awareness um, raised by the, by the crisis of some of these key regional issues. Mm -hmm. Amrita, going back to the, you know, the Indian government's response, um, what's, what's been the overall impact and how, how do you, I guess, evaluate and and measure the good that, or potential good that, that these initiatives have had? Uh, Yeah, that's a good question. So, uh, Of course, the government concentrated a lot of their resources on the 116 districts from where I, I, as I said before, most of the migrants came from. Uh, So these uh, these 116 districts, uh, certainly they were the source destinations for a large majority of the migrant workers. And many of these were were also the poorest uh, with a large fraction of uh, the the, backward uh, castes and tribes in India. But uh, if we if we examine the districts closely, um, my work, which was you know the pre-COVID work that that I've uh, that I've been uh, uh, doing, which was based on this large-scale employment guarantee program, uh, so we looked at our data on these 116 districts, mm-hmm. and in fact we found that you know the resources are actually being concentrated in in districts which have been the weakest in implementation of of this very closely related employment guarantee scheme. Mm-hmm. So they, these districts, for example, had a much lower demographic coverage of the, the older scheme than other districts. And yet they had a higher uh, financial intensity, suggestive of, you know, this is sort of suggestive evidence that there might have been uh, more leakages in these districts. Uh, of course, we cannot be sure with, with the kind of data that we have, but it is suggestive. At any rate, you know, these these were the worst performing uh, districts in the country. And when you say uh, leakages, you at, are, you, are you referring? Sorry, leakages, what? I mean, uh, the sort of, uh, so, so these, this is money that goes uh, as development assistance yep. to the states. And then it's supposed to go to the beneficiaries who are the, the people who, who ask for employment, right? right. So, so by leakage, I mean that the, the money does not reach the beneficiaries, like almost 70% sometimes is, is just siphoned off. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is sort of what I'm talking about. And um, so it seems like, you know, if, if we look at the districts that were targeted and the states where these districts are concentrated in, which is uh, Bihar and UP, these are these are, of course, the poorest states, but they're also the worst performers in terms of, uh, you know, the the efficacy of, of this large-scale employment guarantee programs. The implementation has been the weakest in these, and there is some suggestion from various scholars that, you know, these 
could also have the the, the leakages could have also been much larger here. Mm-hmm. And besides the fact that maybe the state capacity also influences the delivery of these uh, public programs, which could be another reason why these uh, poorer states are, you know, despite the fact that they are the ones most in need, they're also the ones where it's most ineffective in terms of implementation. So, um, so of course, there are, uh, it's hard to say that this is corruption or, or leakage, but there are some estimates of irregularities, uh, which suggest that these two states, uh, which which have the concentration of the districts that I'm talking about, that there were uh, some gaps between the officially reported uh, employment generation figures and the the uh, the survey based figures, mm-hmm. and this may reflect irregularity. So this has been pointed out by a number of uh, of scholars. Mm-hmm. So it may not be a coincidence that uh, these are the the states where corruption or leakages are you know, sort of the highest, at least in terms of the suggested evidence. But there are also the states where accountability, uh, you know, accountability is very weak, that in the sense that uh, social audit mechanisms have been, uh, have have not been, you know, shown to work very well, at least in these, in these states. These are not the ones where social audit has been working well. Right. So it's, it's sort of uh, suggestive that, um, you know, that, that, uh, the, the current uh, programs that the, that the central government has initiated in these states, in these 116 districts, based on the past performance of these states, it doesn't look like it, was, it is going to be very effective. Of course, we cannot say that for sure, but we haven't seen any evidence that there is, uh, you know, that there is an attempt to, to, to make the, sta- the state machinery more effective by somehow changing the administration. So except for the fact that, yes, the central ministry is does have a, a direct, uh, you know, a, a say in, in how the states implement this program. Apart from that, we don't see much evidence of uh, taking this factor into account. The fact that, you know, there has been much more corruption or that, you know, states have been uh, much less effective in uh, in these 116 districts. Right. And, and Jackie, your research on in East Africa has has it resulted? Uh, what have you seen so far? Are the trends? So uh, we're still. Uh, we had a bit of a delay, obviously, with with the COVID impact on our research. But um, I mean, in terms of COVID relief. Um, there is a separate initiative that Global Integrity has been working on in Africa called Account for COVID. Um, and there have been real problems with tracing <laughs> where COVID relief is going to on the ground. And I think some of our interviews with traders that will be launched soon will uh, get a handle on whether any of that relief is is actually uh, reaching them in any way. What type of relief? Um, what type of relief are you referring to? So I think just really uh, resources to the local governments, the county governments um, and access to, you know, PPE yep. and um, sanitizers and um, healthcare and public health awareness mm-hmm. um, and whether any of that, which are all really important, by the way, I think one thing that we're finding is that traders have to now uh, get those, you know, just like small businesses in the U.S. have to buy PPE. They have to um, 
you know, they have to buy sanitizer. All of this is extra costs. If they want to do socially distanced business, let's say in a local market, um, and a number of the businesses are just uh, what we're seeing is that they are they are collapsing. Um, a good fraction of them are no longer women. You know, these women run businesses are able to um, survive. Um, and again, some of the trends are people are moving towards these more local markets where uh, they have all these additional costs and they're also confronting uh Corruption, and one of the interesting things that we're exploring is how some of the actors, like the police, who are always named as the biggest culprits, how they move and adjust and are resilient and find new ways to um, to extract. Mm. Uh, and they often try to follow where you know the new <laughs> the new movement is. Um, so that is one trend we're looking at and uh, exploring. Mm -hmm. um, and again, like a big picture is when you know societies are in in real stress like this. If corrupt networks are resilient and able to adapt and and continue to extract. And sometimes maybe at an even higher level, then the co the corruption actually compounds the mm. crisis. Mm -hmm. um, so that is another reason why we need to understand it and also figure out clever ways to combat it. Right. And, you know, it seems that a lot of, um, you know, what's been going on with the with COVID-19 and the pandemic and and sort of our responses has been this um, immediate reaction. And how do we respond to this or do that? I'm wondering in terms of like the, the long-term outlook and, and what, you know, the coronavirus has uh, put a spotlight on when, when it comes to these, these um, institutions and, and how they operate. Uh, do you, do you see uh, like some way where we're able to, and whether it's not, I'm not hoping we, we have another pandemic, but whether it is some other shock to our system do you see a way we're able to respond to it in a better way when, you know, in the future based on like what we're learning with what's happening now? Well, I mean, I think that, um, you know, it certainly uh, puts corruption in the spotlight. The fact that uh, you have this, this pandemic, because during a crisis, we know that there is a lot of pressure on the government uh, to do things fast mm. and Large sums of money are being transferred with uh, very little accountability because, you know, there is this trade-off between doing things fast and doing them the right way. Uh, this, of course, increases the scope for corruption. And uh, and we see that. So we see that in, in lots of different uh, sectors of the economy and not only in developing countries, but also in, you know, in, in developed countries. Sure. We see, we see uh, uh, you know, more corruption in procurement, uh, PPE and PPE contracts and so on. Mm. And the other thing is... That also with the with this particular pandemic, there have also been these rules and uh, these you know these rules on social distancing and mask wearing and things which have to be enforced. So these are new uh, rules and new administrators, you know, like the police, who, who suddenly have more power than they had before, mm -hmm. and so they can use this to to then uh, you know extract uh, from from the poor, especially people who are uneducated and marginalized communities like, like migrants. So it's, it's, it's really important to, uh, to pursue some um, accountability mechanisms in the long run that can, uh, that can be very quick to respond in times of, in times of shocks like this, where, 
otherwise you would have a much higher uh, scope for you know using power and petty corruption and so on and uh, affecting the lives of people really badly so i would say that uh, you know in these times uh, social audit mechanisms seem to be very important and uh, there's already been a lot of research on what needs to be done to make these social audit mechanisms more effective but during during such times it is actually the voice of the people uh, that's that's the most effective accountability uh, mechanism and awareness of uh, what what the rules and regulations are mm-hmm. and awareness of what's due to them their entitlements etc which would all come about through kind of some kind of bottom up monitoring mm-hmm. Jackie do you have anything to add I think that was really well put and I really agree uh with the uh point that we need to have really, really good accountability mechanisms that are also adaptable and flexible for these kinds of crises. So I think we're learning that. Um, And so there's just a lot of hard work to improve these accountability mechanisms. That's definitely a central focus of our work. And then I think one thing that we're seeing is that the cell phone uh, can be a powerful mm-hmm. tool uh, if it's embedded in uh, social networks and, uh, you know, bottom up accountability um, pressures from society. Because uh, we're seeing that the cell phone uh, in this crisis, for example, is allowing us by by having traders have cell phones and input data that, you know, they can they can give us a sense of what's happening on the mm-hmm. ground from the bottom up. And we're, what what our work is about is trying to see if we can create the conditions to turn that cell phone into also more of a bottom up accountability mechanism and use that to advocate for for better structural change of government mm-hmm. accountability mechanisms. So I think accountability mechanism is definitely the <laughs> the key here. Jackie, how are women being affected uh, when it comes to cross-border migration and, and the corruption that's happening there? Yeah. Um, the majority of small scale trade is done by women and these women in East Africa also invest heavily in their families and communities. So these women are incredibly important and their experience with corruption tends to be worse than for men in that uh They often are not as well educated as the male traders. Uh, They are less empowered and discriminated against in terms of accessing documents and information. Uh, They are much more intimidated, for example, potentially by uh, cross-border officials who tend to be men. And so one thing that we're really exploring in our work is how do we make these cross-border areas uh, sensitive to these gender inequalities? How do we make them friendlier places while at the same time really empowering uh, these women traders to organize, mobilize, and have the information and negotiating power they need to make sure that their businesses and trade and then hence their families and communities can thrive. So gender is very central to 
how we're looking at corruption uh, in East Africa around these borders. Yes, absolutely. And what really strikes me is how urgently necessary the work you're doing in East Africa and Amrita's research in India is. Um, as we're all aware, the story doesn't end here. I want to encourage our listeners to continue to track these two projects and other work being done by the Anti-Corruption Evidence Program uh, at Global Integrity. There's an amazing amount of work, uh, research that's being done there. Um, it's And it's all practical and actionable things that are desperately needed right now. And, and it's great to see how effective uh, policies uh, are being implemented as a result of, of the research happening there. You can learn more at ace.globalintegrity.org. Thank you for joining.